Well, good evening. Uh, we have a new series that we're starting tonight, as Pastor Tyler mentioned, called When People Are Big and God is Small. Uh, so the big question is, well, what is, what is this about? Well, if you're wondering if this is a series about weight loss, it is not a series about weight loss. Maybe somebody, some of you didn't come tonight because you were worried about that. Um, that's not what, what I mean by big people, okay? I got a couple laughs. That was good, I guess. Um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something else, maybe even more serious uh, than that. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 29. We'll get there in just a moment. But before we do, I want to run through just a few uh, scenarios to get your imagination going, okay? I say a few. Actually, I'm going to run you through several scenarios very quickly. A teenager picks up her phone a hundred times in the space of an hour to see how many people have liked her new profile picture. A couple refuses to get counseling for their marriage. A father fails to stand up to his rebellious children. An employee is pressured into an unethical decision by his boss. A child is terrified because she must be in front of a large group of people tomorrow at her recital. A high school student stays up until 2 in the morning talking on the phone to his girlfriend. A man purchases a car far above his means so he won't feel left behind by his neighbors. A college student goes somewhere she shouldn't go with her friends because she's too embarrassed to say that she is a Christian. A church member stops volunteering in a ministry because he has not been complimented in so long. A wife never hosts anyone at her home because she is afraid that people will not be impressed by her house. Now, I know that those scenarios that I, that I just ran through may sound very different. But there is a thread running through all of those examples that connects them. One common thread, one common theme behind the actions of those people. And while the illustration is hypothetical, all of those scenarios happen every day. The one common thread that, that unites those, the common theme, the common motivation underneath those actions is this, the fear of man. The fear of man. When, when I talk about the fear of man, that this may be something that sort of just bounces off of your spiritual radar. You, you hear that and you may think, well, I'm not, I'm not a fearful person. Now, some of you may think, yeah, I, I do have a problem with the fear of man. Go ahead and talk about it. But some of you may be thinking, well, this doesn't necessarily apply to me. I'm a very strong, secure individual, and I, I'm not afraid of things or people. But, but the fear of man that the Bible talks about extends to every facet of our lives. There is no part of your life that, 
that, that is outside of the parameter or that can be outside of the parameter of the issue we're going to talk about tonight. And not just tonight, but really in this whole series. Because in this series, we're not going to move past the problem of people being bigger in your life than God. That's what the whole series is going to explore tonight. We're just introducing it. But the fear of man may be broader than, than what you think. So here's a definition by Ed Welch. Now, Ed Welch wrote a book that basically completely changed my life when I read it several years ago. Um, these sermons aren't coming directly from the book because the book just isn't written in, in such a way where you, could, where you could preach it. It's not quite like, like that. But the, the, uh, the idea and then some of our definitions and concepts are going to come from the book. And when I quote the book, I'll, I'll let you know. But here's Ed Welch's definition of the fear of man in the Bible. He says that in the biblical sense, fear includes being afraid of someone. That's what we typically think of it as. But it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. This is what Proverbs 29 verse 25 is talking about. So if you're in your Bible, you see it on the screen This is what the wise man of Proverbs is addressing when he says, the fear of man bringeth a snare or a trap. But whoso whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Now, is all fear of man that we're going to talk about sinful? Is it always sinful to be afraid of people? Well, not necessarily, We're going to be mainly talking about the sinful fear of man. Now, if you remember when we talked about panic in our last series, we learned that there are good kinds of panic, right? Well, it's the same thing with fear. Um, If you're out in public and somebody pulls out a knife and they're about to stab you and you have to get out of the way, it's probably a good thing to be afraid, right? You don't want to tell them, well, I'm not, I just went to this Wednesday night sermon and I'm not supposed to be afraid of people, so go ahead and have at it. Don't do that. That's not what I'm telling you to do. Please don't do that. No, we we need to be afraid, and and there's a healthy fear in those dangerous situations where our life is at stake. So we shouldn't be foolish. We shouldn't be haphazard. But notice the verse. Uh, The verse doesn't say that if you have the fear of man, you're in a trap, but you'll be safe if you are reckless. That's not what the verse says. The verse doesn't say, instead of living in the fear of man, be reckless and don't be afraid of anything. No, far from it. No, 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 whoso putteth his trust in the Lord. You see, the kind of fear of man that we're talking about, sinful fear of man, negative fear of man, the fear of man that will entrap you is the kind of fear of man that is opposite of fearing the Lord. Fear of others isn't necessarily sinful, but listen, it becomes sinful when it governs your life. When other people or their opinions of you or what they have said to you or what you are afraid they might say to you or how they perceive you runs your life and has more influence over your actions then how you think about God, then we're getting into the sinful fear of man. When other people control you more than the fear of the Lord controls you, you have a problem with the fear of man. 
When, when the thought of how I will be understood or how I will be seen or maybe how I will be misunderstood dominates more of what you do than how does God see me, then you're in the trap, the snare of the fear of man. Now again, this could include something like fear of physical harm, but it's much, much, much more than that. When people control our lives more than the fear of the Lord governs our lives, we have fallen in the trap. Now, the the fear of man can cause us to do things or say things, but it's also related to what we don't say or don't do. So, uh, you can think about this in a a passive father. Uh, his, His fear of man may not lead to him saying anything to his son who's having issues. On the contrary, it may lead to him not saying anything when he should because he doesn't want his son to be mad at him or maybe uh, reject him. There's honestly a bit of this in my own life when I think about my tendency to not confront sin in other people. Now, I don't know if any Christian who just loves to address sin in other people's lives, I mean, we shouldn't love to address sin in other people's lives, but sometimes I avoid difficult conversations that need confronting and confrontation because I'm afraid I don't want them to have a negative opinion towards me. So it's not, in that case, it's not what I'm doing that's the problem, but it's in what I'm failing to do. I'm failing to act because what other people think of me controls me more than what does God want me to do. The church is intended to be a place where we learn to love others and where we learn to know others. But it can be a place where fear of others dominates what we do and what we say or what we don't admit. You want to be viewed as mature. Uh, You want to be seen as a person in fellowship that has it all together. Uh, you want to be known as someone who has the perfect marriage. You want to be known as someone that has great kids. And these, at, at, at bottom, can be good desires. But if your desire is, I want, to be, I want to be known for all those things because I want other people to think good of me and well of me, then you're going to hide sin. You're going to try to deal with it with yourself when you may need the help of others to deal with it. You're going to close off and you're going to isolate. And the, the church, where it, it, which is intended to be a place of honesty and, tr- and transparent openness, uh, the church which is supposed to be the place where everyone understands just how real sin is because we have the Holy Spirit, but it can become a place where sin is hid the most, where people don't un- own up to it, ironically. The fear of man can run deep in our lives. The fear of man can even, can even show up in spiritual activities. It's not limited to what, what would be outside of that. Even in preparing the sermon, I've had temptations of the fear of man. So I, I find myself writing and I find myself thinking and then rewriting and rewriting and then I think, will people like this? And now, of course, there's, there's a healthy sense where you want people to understand a sermon and connect with the sermon and you want the Holy Spirit to use it to change lives. But often I'm not thinking about how much I want the Holy Spirit to change lives. I'm wondering, will people like how I preach? That's the fear of man. And it's not the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you see any of those threads running through your own life or not, but maybe... Some of these questions will help. I have some diagnostic 
questions in your handout. This will not necessarily be a a fun way to spend the next few minutes, but I think it will be a helpful way if you take it seriously. Now, if you're sitting beside someone and you think, man, I really want this person next to me to have a really good view of me, so I'm going to say never on all of these, well, you're missing the point of the series. Just hide it. Cover it up. Don't let them see. If you're sitting with your spouse, move a couple chairs down and write down the truth, okay? Number one, have you ever struggled with peer pressure? By the way, peer pressure is not just for kids. Did you know that? Now, it affects kids, but it affects adults plenty. I want to have the perfect spouse, the perfect child, the perfect job. I want people to think I make a lot of money. Or maybe I want people to feel bad for me, so I want them to think I don't make a lot of money. I want to have the perfect house. Peer pressure works on adults, too. Are you overcommitted? Do you, do you always say yes to people because you don't want them to be disappointed in you? Somebody says, hey, can you, can you help me out with this? I look at my calendar. Uh, Thursday at 6 p.m. Oh, I have this at Thursday at 6 p.m. Are you open Thursday at 6 p.m.? Yes, I am. Am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> I would rather, I, I, and I think, well, by Thursday morning, I'll figure out a way to do both because I don't want them to think I'm an unhelpful person. That's not wise to do that, but we do that out of the fear of man. Do you need, number three, do you need something from your spouse or your friends? Are you needy toward them? By the way, neediness is not love. Now you may think, well, I'm, I'm really in love with this person because I need them so much, I have to have them to, li- to live. Well, God is the ultimate example of love, and yet God doesn't need us at all. Are you needy toward your friends? Do you always need them to listen to you, need them to respect you? If your spouse or one of your friends or one of your children fails to meet one of your expectations, do you fall apart? Number four, are you always worried about self-esteem? Are you always trying to boost it, trying to improve it? Five, do you struggle with the fear of exposure? You don't want people to be disappointed in you. You don't want them to think you were an imposter. So if people think you're intelligent, you're going to do whatever it takes to convince other people you're intelligent. If people think you have a good marriage, you're going to do whatever it takes to convince them you have a good marriage. On and on we could go. Do you have that fear of being exposed as not as proficient or as good or as uh, powerful in something as you, as you want other people to think. Number six, are you always second-guessing decisions, not because of what is wise, but because of how other people will feel about it? You know it's the right thing to do, but you haven't pulled the trigger on it because, what's this person going to think? Seven, do you feel empty or meaningless without others' approval? Do you experience where if you don't get enough affirmation, you don't get enough compliments, you don't get enough approval, you don't have enough people telling you what you want to hear about yourself, then you feel like you're empty or that your life has no purpose? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie? Not big lies, especially small lies. Do you feel like you're always having to adjust the truth just a little bit, maybe to make yourself look like the hero, or on the contrary, to make yourself look like the victim, 
Are you always tooling with the narrative to control how other people think? Ten, are you jealous of other people? Do you find yourself thinking and thinking and thinking about what other people have that you don't? Do people have the power and the control over you to make you angry? Or depressed? 12, do you often find yourself avoiding people? Are you obsessed with diet and exercise in order to impress others? Now, it's possible all of these questions have missed the mark and you have straight nevers all the way down. Now, if that is the case, then I have another question for you, and it's this. When you compare yourself with other people, does it make you feel good? You see, one of the most dangerous forms of the fear of man is what I would call the successful fear of man. You're not terrified because you think you're worse than everybody else. You think you're better than everyone else, and it's in that comparison that you find your value. You don't see your value as someone created by God and loved by God. You don't find your ultimate value in someone who has a relationship with Jesus. No, you're valuable because you have this or you excel at this, or you feel like your character has developed in this way and these other people around you are behind. See, the successful fear of man is still getting down to the same problem, even though you may not think of it as fear of man. Your life is being controlled by other people. And you're not giving any regard whatsoever to the fear of the Lord. People are big in your life, and as people become big in your life, God becomes small. And what God thinks and how God feels and even what God has said about you and God's promises to you mean very, very little. Now, it's it's also possible that you find yourself thinking, well, I don't struggle with the fear of man because I don't don't care what other people think about me. And I tell people that all the time. (laughs) I, I just want to let you in on a little secret. If you have to tell people all the time that you're a John the Baptist, prophet type, you don't care what anybody thinks about you, and you have to tell them that again, again, and again, and again, it's because you want them to think that you're the John the Baptist, prophet type that doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. The proof is in the pudding. You do care deeply what people think about you, and if people ever disagree with you and say, I think you do care what others think, and you explode, you care what others think about you. So you see, this affects the very secure and the very insecure. Everyone who has a small view of God at the end of the day will be controlled by other people and what other people think of them. So now if you haven't started to gather this yet, I hope you realize that the purpose of this series is not just to make you feel better about yourself. The purpose of this series is not just to, you know, uh, Pastor Tyler and I are going to be talking about different ways we fear man. That's not just to help you get over the fear of man in your life. Because that's not addressing the underlying problem. What we're going to be doing in this series, in addition to exposing the different ways that fear of man can take hold in your life, is pointing you to fear the Lord. We want the fear of the Lord to grow in you because it's only as God, it's only as you see God for who he really is that the fear of man will be put in its proper place. So who fears man? Who is this a problem for? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and by the way, a text that has much more to do with the fact that we can escape from temptation. I want you to notice that Paul says that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
Now, again, we could go on. That's not where the verse stops. But it's important for you to know going into this series that you're not the only one that struggles with this. We've been talking about combating Satan's lies. And one of Satan's lies that he uses to, to tempt and discourage believers is that I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that, hap- that this happens to. Now, if you begin to think that way, what's going to come out of that? Well, no one else can help me with this because no one else has experienced this. If I were to share with someone that this is my sin, this whole fear of man thing, well, no one could understand me. No one could help me. They may even look down on me. But listen, temptations are common. <laughs> There's nothing special about your temptation. So don't use that as a way to isolate and hide and cover And go deeper into self-deceit and deceiving others by saying, well, I'm the only one that deals with fear of man. We all do. Temptations are common. The devil wants to tell you that you've got this special XLT package on your temptation. That You're the only one that's got it. It's not true. It's not true. We all struggle with the fear of man. It's a universal struggle. A universal struggle. It's not limited to position. It's not limited to social standing. It's not limited to personality. The rich, if they have a small view of God, deeply care about other people knowing that they're rich. And it's the same with the poor. The powerful, if they have a small view of God, want other people to know they're powerful, and the weak want other people to know that they're weak. The unbeliever and the believer. It would be great that if, when we got saved, that we didn't have to deal with this anymore, but we do have residual sin. So this is not just a problem for non-Christians. And yes, we know God, and yes, our life maybe has been, has been transformed by God, and we have been saved by God, but the fear of man is still a very real temptation. It's a trap that even believers can fall and do fall into many times. So we all fear man. Now, there's something helpful here, because when we begin to see the commonality of our sin— we also see the commonality of our shared hope in Christ. You see, you're not the only one in the building that deals with this because everyone in the building has either dealt with this in the past or more than likely, in some way, they're dealing with it right now. So you are surrounded by people that either have or are being controlled by the fear of man. Now that may sound discouraging, but listen, as we think about the commonality of our sin, we realize that our hope in Christ is also common to all of us. If we know Jesus, then God is saving us from this. God is taking us to the image of Christ who doesn't fear man at all. God is changing us to make us more like his son so that we can fear the Father, that we respect the Father, that we see truly how big the Father is and that the fear of man then takes its place. So let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why we fear man. What are some reasons maybe that account for the fear of man that you struggle with? Well, the first one would be past experience. Past experience. It, it tells us when we've been hurt in the past, it tells us that we will be hurt again. When we've been disappointed by people in the past, we get the idea we're going to be disappointed again. And if you have lived your life Uh, As a sinner, as we all are, controlled by the fear of man, it's really hard to pull out of that rut. It's really hard. Because it's natural for us to stay in the ruts of our sin. It's natural for us to stay in those ruts that our sin nature has given us. And, And for every fear of man temptation we encounter, there's always a memory. There's always 
a, a painful memory of when we were hurt by other people and we feel like the only way to move forward is if people think this about me. I have to do better at pleasing other people because when I've not pleased other people, look, look at what's happened in my life. And we all have a story that connects with that. Another reason, a big reason is pride. We are proud and self-centered, so pride is at the heart of our fear of man. Now, pride, by the way, is not limited to the the obviously self-confident person. Pride is also part of what's going on in the heart of the insecure person. If if you are self-confident or if you are insecure, then in either case, you see yourself as you compare to other people. You're orienting your life around other people and the basis of how they see you. If you have an underpaid self-pitying secretary at a large company. She can struggle with the fear of man, but so can the the egotistical CEO at the very top of the company. And underneath, it's the same sin. Number three, we we struggle with the fear of man because we have a needs-based view of other people. Now, we touched on this a little bit in our little uh, in our questions for the diagnosis, um, and and hopefully if you saw this symptom, it kind of came to mind. But we can have a needs-based view of other people. And this sounds so legitimate because it's how everyone around us talks. Because sinners don't, it's it's not natural and typical for us to love other people. It's natural and typical for us to use other people as tools to meet our needs. I need her love. I need his love. I need their respect. I need their pity. I need their interest. I need my children's obedience. I need his friendship. On and on and on. And if I don't have it, I won't be a complete person. I'll be empty. I'll be nothing. There's nothing left of me without this other person doing what I want them to do for me. Do you see how wrong this is? But this is how many of us often think about our relationships. Uh, You know, especially when it comes to marital relationships and then even premarital relationships, if you're about to get married or you've been married recently, you could be experiencing infatuation but mistake it for love. Now, infatuation is not just slightly different than love. It's actually the opposite of love. You see, love uh, is willing to sacrifice whatever cost is necessary to benefit the other person. Infatuation takes whatever is necessary from the other person, no matter how much it hurts them. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing at all. Four, we can have a wrong view of what we truly need and ultimately what we truly deserve. Now, all the things that I mentioned, all those relationships I mentioned are good things. It's good to have a pastor. It's good to have a spouse. It's good to have children, and it's really great when they're obedient. It's good to have grandchildren. It's good to have close friends. Hey, these are all good, healthy relationships, but none of those people, none of those people can do what God can do. They weren't meant to do what what God can do. But see, if we have a wrong view of what we truly need, and that often leads to a wrong view of what we think we deserve. It's a very short step from I need this to I deserve this. But as a Christian, I must remember the only thing I truly need in this life is to be reconciled to God. 
The only thing I truly need is for my sin to be atoned for. The only thing I truly need is for God to accept me, not for necessarily others to accept me. The only thing I need is for God to affirm me. I don't necessarily need others to affirm me, to be a whole person. As we begin to reexamine what we truly need and what we truly deserve, we're going to have to see that, that, that God defines what we need and deserve, not other people. Now, I want to give you this warning. Um, If we try to deal with the fear of man, apart from what Jesus has done for us on the cross, while it may provide some temporary relief, and maybe we feel a little bit free and a little bit better about ourselves, it's not going to get to the root of the issue. Only when we see ourselves as forgiven and justified and adopted and loved and owned and cared for by God will we not need and feel like we deserve other people. You will be able to love people and not need them if you know who and what God is and has done for you. But to the degree you forget who God is and what God has done for you, you won't be able to love other people. You'll just need them. I hope this is making sense. Perhaps the problem is it could be making a little bit too much sense. It's cutting too close to home. What does, what does Scripture say about it? There's a few words from Scripture besides Proverbs 29 that I think will help us understand this topic as we approach it tonight. Luke 12, first of all, uh, the fear of man is short-sighted. The fear of man is short-sighted. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, what's the worst they can do to me? Well, Jesus says, well, I guess they could kill you. <laughs> That's probably not going to happen with most of our relationships, but even if it did, Jesus says that it is short-sighted to fear man more than we fear God because of God's power. Because how God sees you, hey, if God is not judging you, Does it really matter at the end of the day if someone condemns you that shouldn't? If if God is going to spend eternity with you and you're not going to hell, does it really matter if people become disappointed in you or aren't impressed with you? If God loves you as his own and calls you his child, even though you deserve eternal judgment, does it really matter that they didn't like your Facebook post? Jesus puts things into perspective, doesn't he? And it's kind of painful. The fear of man is not only short-sighted, but it's also the opposite of love. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Number three, it minimizes our position in Christ. It minimizes our position in Christ. Listen to Romans 8. Verse 35 and then verses 38 to 39. By the way, if you're going to do any kind of homework after tonight, go back and read these last few verses of Romans 8. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what Paul's doing in Romans 8? And do you know why we love this passage so much? 
Because Paul, by looking at how God has loved him in Christ, is maximizing his position in Christ. Now what happens, watch, look at the verses. What happens when Paul maximizes who God is for him and what God has done for him? As he maximizes his position in Christ, it minimizes his fear of man. So he says almost mockingly, shall persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Sword, famine, he rattles them off in a list. Distress, nakedness, peril, as if they're not that big of a deal. Why would you say that, Paul? How could you minimize these things? Because he's maximizing who he is in Jesus. And to the degree that we minimize what we have in Christ, these things are going to seem really, really big in our lives. See, some of us will go home tonight and it, and it will keep you up until three in the morning wondering how this person feels about you or how this person is unimpressed with you or how this person is mad at you. And the reason it's going to keep you up till three in the morning is because you have so shrunken in your heart what God has done for you in Christ. We cannot give our full attention to both. You cannot live your life from the view of what Jesus has done for you and live your life controlled by the fear of others. One of them has to go. One of them has to go. So which will it be? I want to give just a couple examples of men and women. I mentioned uh, men and women in the Bible who struggled with this. I mentioned that this is not your temptation. This is all of our temptation. Okay, And we're all going to hopefully grow in this together. First of all, Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham struggled with the fear of man. He was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him because of his wife's beauty. Abraham was the father of a whole nation that would struggle with the fear of man. Lot, he feared man more than God. Not only did it have ramifications for his life, but for the life of his family and for the life of the nations that would come for his family because he cared more about what people thought than what God thought. Jacob flees to Laban because of the fear that Esau will kill him. Moses, as a young man, runs away after killing a man in Egypt. It's hard to think of someone in the, in the Old Testament more brave than Moses, and yet even Moses dealt with the fear of man. And did you notice later in his life, the sin that kicks him out of the promised land essentially is his striking the rock. Why did he do that? Because he was angry at how the people were treating him. Fear of man. Aaron gives in to the Israelites to make the golden calf. Samson gives in to Delilah's requests over time as he is worn down. No one had the physical appearance of someone that wouldn't be afraid, that wouldn't be timid, that wouldn't be easily pushed around like Samson. But even Samson was controlled by the fear of man because, as I've said, it takes many different forms. Saul is jealous over David, and because of how fearful he is that David is going to have God's blessing and the kingdom, he wastes most of his life and most of the nation's resources on chasing one of the greatest men who ever led the nation. Jonah is terrified of the Ninevites. The Pharisees, many examples of this. In the book of John, uh, the apostle John says that many of the Pharisees believed him but wouldn't say anything because they were afraid of the people. Even Peter denies Christ. So when we look to the story of Scripture, we see this question played out over and over and over again, don't we? Will God's people fear the Lord or will they fear man? And the same question mark hangs over our own lives as well. 
Will the fear of man control what you do, or will your life be governed by the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of man doing in your life? Is it making you spend more than you should because of what other people will think? Is it keeping you addicted to social media? Is the fear of man making you discouraged about serving because not enough people notice what you do? Is the fear of man keeping you quiet about the temptations and the frustrations and struggles you're having that you should be talking about with others? Is the fear of man preventing you from sharing the gospel like you should? Here's the bottom line. We fear man because we do not fear God or we do not fear God enough. That's it. We fear man because we do not fear God or we do not fear God enough. Each time we give ourselves over to the fear of man, whatever that looks like for you, and I hope going through the list has helped you maybe identify some specific ways that you're tempted in this area. Each time we give ourselves to the fear of man, we are letting our lives be governed and controlled and manipulated by people instead of our lives being led by our Lord who made us, who loved us, and who bought us. Now, next week, we're going to be unpacking more of what the fear of God looks like. Pastor Tyler is going to be uh, preaching that sermon uh, because really, it's, it's only until we have a solid grasp on who the God of the Bible is, only until we can imagine God as he has told us to imagine him, will, will we be able to deal with the fear of man. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do tonight. I want you to respond tonight and come before the Lord. But I, I, I'm not going to ask you to come and try to change, try to change this in your life. All I'm asking you to do is, is this, because we're just at the very start of a, probably a seven-week series. I just want you to, to be honest with God about how you see the fear of man in your life. You don't have to ask God to change you overnight. You don't have to ask God to, to make you the, the person who fears the Lord more than anyone else. You don't have to ask God to help you master the fear of God. All I want you to do is this. If you've went through the list and you see where you struggle with the fear of man, just be honest with God and tell him that you struggle with it. Now, we're going we're gonna to take it from there. We're going to go a lot farther in the series. We're going to expose maybe some uncomfortable things as we go through these sermons. But all I want you to do tonight is come before the Lord and if you have dealt with this sin, just tell him. Tell him and ask him for his grace. Can we do that tonight?